When I was in the seminary getting my Master's of Divinity degree, I actually cheated. So I'm not really a Master of Divinity. I I cheated my way into getting it. Uh, No, but seriously, so one of the things that... um, that you do when you're in a, a master's level program. I'm sure a lot of different uh, programs, especially when you're in the arts and humanities, is you do a lot of reading, a lot of reading. And, uh, you know, you have to read thousands and thousands of pages for each class. And when you have like five or six classes, sometimes the reading can get a little bit away from you. And so I remember distinctly, it was my very first, uh, I think it was my very first semester in the seminary, there was one class I was taking. It was called the Development of SDA, Seventh-day Adventist Theology. So it it goes over the history of the development of how Seventh-day Adventists came to believe what Seventh-day Adventists believe, and the reading was just getting away from me. And so, you know, you come to the end of the semester, and you're supposed to declare, write your name, and say, I, Sean Brace, did all of the assigned reading. And um, I didn't do all the assigned reading. I know this is crazy to think about. <laughs> but I, so, so I, I, I checked off that box. I wrote my name out. And then over the next few weeks, guess what happened? I started feeling incredible guilt. I started feeling incredible shame. Now, the problem was that the teacher was actually a somewhat decent friend of my family's. His wife was the uh, best friend of my mother since high school. And so that made things more complicated. What made things even more complicated, and I hope this individual will never listen to this, but... He was known as being a very strict and conservative professor. Very straight-laced, very, speaking of emotion, lacking emotion. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, what am I going to do here? But I prayed, prayed over it, and I debated, and I wrestled, and I decided I finally need to do this. I'm going to send an email to him confessing my sin. And so I can still remember to this day sitting at that computer, typing out, dear Dr. So-and-so, I have to tell you that I lied about finishing my reading assignment. And then I waited. And then I waited. And I waited. And I don't know, a day or two later, I finally see the title of the response. And I don't remember exactly what he said in response, But it was something to the effect of, literally, okay. (laughs) And I was like, so, (laughs) where are we here? (laughs) To this day, this is like, that was 2005. So old. (laughs) Ah, To this day, if I were to come across Dr. So-and-so, I'd be like thinking in my mind, where are we in this whole thing? He probably thinks that I'm just this terrible, wretched, you know, lying student. And the reality is, I was 
I was feeling, and I still feel, because I've had no relief from him, I still feel shame about it. Now, perhaps confessing it here will, will help alleviate some of that. I don't know. I think I told Camille about this. Maybe she, if I had, hadn't, you know, maybe if I had, we wouldn't be still married or something. I don't know. So I must not have. No, but, but the reality is, is that we all experience those times of shame and guilt. And imagine if we went to Jesus and we confessed and we, we worked up the courage and we shared our guilt and shame and he had the same response. Okay. Aren't you glad that God does not interact with us on that level? There's a quote that maybe I've shared before from Brene Brown, and she talks about shame. She says, shame is fear of disconnection. The fear that we're unlovable and we don't belong. We all experience shame. We all experience that feeling of unworthiness, And feeling that if we were to reveal ourselves to other people, they might just pull away from us. There might be some lack of clarity as to how we stand with them. Whether they they view us as still worthy of connection and love or whether they would pull away from us. Have you ever gotten the silent treatment? That is a a very... uh, coveted response that some people use when other people disappoint or they they hurt them or they damage them is I'll just give this person the silent treatment. I'll just pull away from them and, and, and cut them off so that they can get the message that I don't really appreciate or love them anymore. We do a lot of different subtle things to indicate our our disappointment with people. We do very little subtle things that that allow people to remain in their shame and in their guilt and in their feeling of unworthiness. So last week we talked just a little bit about the gospel. In the next few weeks we're going to just do a little more gospel exploration because as I mentioned last week, I need an infusion of the gospel all the time. I need to be reminded again and again of my belovedness and how when I go to Jesus, he doesn't look at me and say, okay, Or he doesn't look at me and then look the other way. You see, that is not God's heart whatsoever. And this morning I want to look at a a story that perhaps some of us have read before. And I read it this week and it it just overwhelmed me with appreciation and gratitude once again. And so I want to spend a little time looking at it. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 8. And um, there's a couple stories that are going on. We're going to just focus on one of the stories. But there's kind of two stories going on at once. And so we're going to dwell on the story that is introduced after the initial setting is is explained by Luke. And notice what the message, how the message puts it. On his return, Jesus was welcomed by a crowd. Now, on his return from where? It's not really all that pertinent to our story, but the bottom line is that Jesus had just been and Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he cast out the demons from the men who were cutting themselves and who had the, you know, the demoniacs. And so he's on his way back home, so to speak, and it says there was a crowd that welcomed him, and they were all expecting him. A man came up, Jairus by name, 
And he was president of the meeting place. In other words, he was the head of the synagogue. So this is a very important man. This is a man who has has high reputation. He is in charge of the synagogue in their local town. It says he uh, he fell at Jesus' feet and he begged him to come to his home because his 12-year-old daughter, his only child, was dying. And Jesus went with him, making his way through the pushing, jostling crowd. So you see the scene before us. It's interesting that Luke specifically notes that this young lady is 12 years old. Now, I don't believe uh, uh, the other gospel writers make note of that, but he specifically mentions that this girl is 12. Now, what, what does Luke go on to explain? In the crowd that day, there was a woman who, notice how many years, it's interesting, who for how many years? 12 years had been afflicted with hemorrhages. In other words, she had been bleeding for 12 years. Other translations or other versions say she had an issue of blood or she had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now, I'm not a woman, but I could imagine the challenges that that would present. And, uh, you know, just the physical challenges alone would be very troubling and challenging. But for 12 years, she has this flow of blood. For 12 years, she is hemorrhaging. Notice what it goes on to say. She had spent every penny she had on doctors, but not one of them had been able to help her. Now, in other translations, it said she had spent her livelihood. And the word that is used for livelihood is the word bios or bios, from whence we get the word bio or life, biology, the study of life. So she, it's almost as if they're saying she has poured out her entire life on trying to be cured, on trying to overcome what was what was challenging her. She had spent and spent and spent because she wanted relief from the things that were hampering her. And so her whole life is being poured into this. And, and I'm sure you can appreciate it. If something was, was troubling you as deeply as it was troubling her, you would do all that you could to remedy the problem. Now, it's interesting because as we read this, we may not appreciate the full magnitude of her problem. Because in our minds, it is simply a physical challenge that she is facing. But what she is even more troubled by, no doubt, is the religious implications of this experience. Because, according to the Old Testament, if a woman was bleeding, she was considered unclean. Notice what it says in the book of Leviticus. This is the background to this story. This is, this is a very interesting little contextual realization. Leviticus chapter 15, it records these words. If a, woman, if a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days, and whoever, what, touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. goes on to say, just skipping a few verses, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity... All the days of her unclean discharge shall be the days as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. 
So this was a religious, spiritual trauma that she was experiencing. She was considered an outcast. She was considered unclean and impure, and nobody could come in contact with her. Anything that she touched had to be ritually cleansed. Anyone that touched her had to be ritually cleansed and and made pure. Anything that she did, she could not go to the temple to present her sacrifices because no unclean thing could come into the temple. And so for 12 years, it was as though she said, you know, I can't even go to church. I can't be with God's people. And so imagine the shame and and, and the trauma that that must have had on her as she was considered completely an outcast and an outsider and somebody who could not come into contact with others. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was reading this and I was going over this, I was thinking to myself, why would God make such a crazy rule to begin with, right? Like, we don't do that today and maybe we should, I don't know. (laughs) Why is it only ladies that are like, oh, no, we don't do that today. Why would God have it done to begin with if it seems like a silly, obsolete rule? Why would God do that? Well, first of all, let's remember something. This is something that was a law like 3,000 years ago. Their context was completely different than our context today in that they were coming from a different place intellectually, culturally, They operated within a different paradigm during the days of Moses. And it was not uncommon culturally for the different societies and cultures around them to have these strange ritual behaviors, okay? So it's like if you and I were to step into the the, the rainforest of the Amazon, and we came upon some tribe, the customs that they would have, it would be hard for us to fully appreciate where they're coming from because it's just such a foreign world and, and culture to us. And so we have to, we have to recognize that as we, as we approach these subjects. But one of, uh, uh, actually another seminary professor, not the same one that I talked about, but a very well-known Old Testament scholar who has written a, a book on the topic of Old Testament law for Christians, and it's published by a major academic press. He offered this perspective on this particular idea. He says, holiness and impurity were incompatible in ancient Israel. Physical ritual impurities which were associated with, what is the word, next word? Mortality, were not to contact and thereby defile holy things that were linked to Yahweh, that is God, the pure, holy, immortal creator and sustainer of all life. So in other words, what God was trying to help them recognize was any physical defect was not in line with the ultimate plan for for, for life and for holiness and for immortality. So the blood that was signified, the blood signified a, a, a sort of mortality, a sort of incongruence with the reality of what God is trying to do. Does this make sense? And so any type of physical deformity was a reflection of sin's effect on physical life. And so as a way to try to just impress on their minds that these things were not in harmony 
with God's ultimate, original, perfect design, he wanted to make a separation between that which was pure and that which was impure. In other words, what God was seeking to do was to just have them come face to face with the fact that there was something better that he was working out. And so in order to impress it on their mind, he made these strict distinctions between things that were, that were pure and things that were impure. I don't think, in other words, that in the new earth, ladies, I'm sorry to share this with you, but in the new earth, I don't know that you'll have your menstrual cycles, okay? Is that a bad thing to hear? Okay. But this, these things are not, not what God originally designed. So, so this lady... And we can talk about that later. I see still very puzzled looks on your faces. But for the sake of time, we'll leave it there. So, so this lady, nevertheless, she is there and experiencing this shame. She is living in isolation. She is separate from others. She is not even allowed to touch people or have people touch her without them all being impure, without them all being unclean. But she wants deliverance from this isolation. She wants deliverance from this shame. She wants deliverance and rescue from the things that are separating her from the fellowship of, of, of God's people, from the, the fellowship of even with God himself. And so we go back to Luke 18 and we read these words. She slipped in from behind and touched the edge of Jesus' robe. And at that very moment, her hemorrhaging stopped, her bleeding stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? Who touched me? When no one stepped forward, Peter said, but master, we've got crowds of people on our hands. Dozens have touched you. Jesus insisted, someone touched me. I felt power discharging from me. When the woman realized that she couldn't remain hidden, she knelt, trembling before him. It reminds me of that woman who was caught in adultery. She's she's flung at the feet of Jesus, and she's there trembling. She's crying. She's shaking. She's waiting for judgment to be laid down on her. And what does Jesus say? In front of all the people, she blurted out her story, why she touched him, and how at that same moment she was healed. And Jesus said, check this out. I love that, that term that Jesus uses. What does he say? He says, daughter, daughter. You talk about a beautiful Father's Day story of the fatherhood of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the the compassion of Jesus, he says, daughter. Just that label, just that title gives her dignity. Just that title makes her realize that she is worthy and she is loved and she is, she is deemed valuable. He says, daughter, you took a risk in trusting me. And now you're healed and whole. Live well. Live blessed. Jesus just by speaking those words, lifts her shame from her shoulders. He takes all of that feeling of unworthiness and he takes all that isolation she has felt and he gives her dignity and he tells her that she is loved and he, and he assures her that she, can be, she is completely made whole, that she doesn't have to hide anymore, that she can be who she is without judgment. By God's grace. You know, I hear a lot of stories of 
people who have experienced a lot of shame and persecution. And I could go into stories. Just this morning, I was going back and forth with some of my family members via text message. And we're talking about, and I, you know, this, is, this sermon is not a, about this topic exclusively, but it certainly includes it. Those who are in, for example, the LGBTQ plus community who have to go into hiding and can't be who, who, they can't be children of God because they feel shame just for being who they are. And I could tell you story after story. And uh, some wonder, well, what, what do we, you know, how do we persecute such people? And, and, and to go through your whole life and be sneered at and, and, and joked about and to be, you know, discounted and pushed aside and feeling like you can't be like this woman for 12 years, she couldn't be in the company of God's people because of something that is no choice of your own. And yet God looks down on all. He looks down on, on those from the LGBT community. He looks on, on, on those who have other stories, who have other shame experiences, and he says, daughter. He says, son. He says, my child. He says, I, be made whole. Be made well. There's no need to experience that shame and that hiding and that, that isolation from other people. Come into the embrace the love of my embrace. Come into the arms of, of my community and be, and be embraced by my people. And so that's a very easy, simple application for us. Let's first of all hear the good news that God delivers us from any shame or guilt or isolation. Let's hear that good news and realize how it applies to us and be healed and be made whole. And then we won't feel threatened when other people come into our fellowship, come into our circle, come into our, sit at our table. And we can not feel like, oh, we're going to be made impure and unclean because we're with these people. And what will others think of us? And maybe we're going to be, you know, tempted into certain things or we'll be, you know, go down some slippery slope that we don't want to go down. But let's be the gospel people. Let's be the, the ones that, that reach out and touch someone. I, was, I was, uh, had to go to court this week with one of our, our dear sisters in, in the wider missional community. And it was a very traumatic experience. And she was just there sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And, you know, you're kind of taught in this day and age, as a pastor, you don't touch somebody who's not your spouse, especially a woman. But what was I going to do? What was I going to do? I just put my arm on her, my hand on her back, and I rubbed her back. You know, this woman was reaching out for a touch, the dignity that that, that touch had. And you and I, I'm not, please don't misunderstand, I'm not saying going out and rub everyone's back. But you understand what I'm, what I'm getting at, right? Like, are we going to be those gospel people who through one word, through one glance, through one hug, through one hand on the shoulder, we say, 
You don't need to feel shame anymore. Daughter, son, child. God, God, there's a wideness to God's mercy. That's the application. But let's, as I said, I'm, I'm so prone to do that these days. Let's just apply it to our own hearts first. Let's, let's believe, dare believe, the reality of God's reckless love. And I need to hear that over and over and over and over again so that I, too, can be made whole.